Okay, morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, everything we do today will be uh, for your honour. Uh, we know we fall far short uh, of all you've called us to be uh, in our thinking, in our hearts, in what we do. Uh, we know our minds naturally bend away from your truth and towards our own uh, selfish ends. Uh, but we know uh, even more that you are more gracious uh, than we could ever begin uh, to realise and dream. We know that you are more kind and forgiving uh, that we can uh, begin to see. And so we pray that you'd pardon our sin today as we begin uh, another day as we come to you uh, in worship again. And we pray that you'd renew us in the image of your son. Uh, where we need correcting and rebuking, do so we pray. Where we need encouraging, uh, encourage us. Uh, train us all the more to be faithful disciples, we ask. Uh, give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome um, to Sunday School. We're in the, the middle, fifth week, in fact, of a series thinking uh, about what it means to be men and women, according to the New Testament. Um, hopefully there's a handout on each seat. We don't arrange tables each week, so it's a kind of sit where you like. Um, yeah, grab a handout, grab a Bible. That should get a lead through. Uh, what we've been doing so far is trying to basically trying to move through the Bible and see just see what the text has to say about men and women. But as we come to the back end of the series, I want to get a bit more specific and start focusing in on some some of the issues, the kind of questions we had uh, or we might have. Uh, and today I want to focus in really narrowly on the question of church leadership in the New Testament. Um, one of the things I've been trying to say all the way through the series is that. Um, the Bible presents men and women as complementary. Um, just as the, the, uni- the, the, the creation was com- full of complementary pairs, sun, moon, um, sea, land, night, day, all sorts of complementary pairs all the way through Genesis 1. Well, so male and female are complementary. And, and what I think the Bible says is actually that complementarity it is sort of worked out in more ways than just marriage and just church leadership. So it, the, the Bible, I think, paints a broader picture than just marriage and just church leadership. But at the very least, it does paint uh, a picture of marriage and church leadership where the gender differences are seen. So last week we looked at marriage. This week we're looking at the idea of, of leadership in the church in the New Testament. So really what we're going to do today is, is a deep dive of one passage, 1 Timothy 2, if you, um, if you want to turn that up. And this is a kind of key passage for the kind of debates you've no doubt come across, um, who, can, yeah, who can lead churches, who can preach, all that sort of thing. Um, just by way of context, um, the first church leader in the Bible we meet was, was Adam. Do you remember when he was made, Eve hadn't been made yet. And so Adam is given the, the words of God to then speak on to Eve. So it's to Adam the command is given, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Um, it's to Adam the command to work and keep the garden is given. Um, he is the, the head of the church, if you like, fledgling though it is. And that's only strengthened by the fact that Paul, when he's talking about that passage in Ephesians 5, says actually this was always a picture of Christ and the church. So Adam was a picture of Christ and Eve, the bride, the church. Um, and obviously it is Christ who teaches the church, not the church who teaches Christ. 
uh, as we go through the Old Testament, uh, we see that all the church leaders are male. Um, the church of the Old Testament uh, was led by priests, the sons of Levi. And actually, in a, in a similar way, that the people were looked after, if you like, governed by elders. So each um, tribe and clan and family and even cities, in fact, had elders over them who, again, were, were male. Elders, by the way, aren't a New Testament invention. We sometimes think, if we're trying to work out, you know, all these, should we have bishops and archbishops or elders or deacons? Or we sometimes think we should just look at the New Testament. But actually, you see that elders are there all the way through um, the Old Testament, too. And by the time we come to the New Testament, we come across a thing called a presbytery. Um, in the ESV, it's often translated Council of Elders. And the, the sort of Aramaic word for it is the Sanhedrin. So over Israel, there was a council of these elders, a presbytery. And tragically, that was the council that condemned Jesus to, to death. Uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, what do we see? Well, he appoints apostles, okay, 12 apostles, uh, as the foundation stones uh, on which the church will be built, the preaching of these men. Uh, some of people say, well, he only chose male apostles because he was bound by the culture of his day. You know, he couldn't, uh, it would have been too, um, too unsettling to go against that. But that, that's a big thing to say about Jesus, isn't it? You know, he, he wouldn't dare go against the cultural, mori, the cultural mores of his day. He wouldn't go against the, you know, the, I don't know, the, the sexist view of his day or something like that. He's the son of God, of course he would. He was quite unhappy, quite happy rather, to upset people on all sorts of issues if he was right and where they were wrong. So when Jesus appoints apostles, who are going to be the ultimate church leaders of that first generation, he chooses 12 men. And I say all this before we turn to 1 Timothy 2, because um, you don't want to get the impression that this whole question of who should lead the church in the New Testament is just about one passage, the passage we're about to look at today. As we'll see a little bit, um, it's a passage that gets attacked endlessly, debated endlessly. But actually, even if that passage wasn't in the Bible, you'd still have this whole weight of other evidence. So, um, let's, let's focus a little bit on church office in the New Testament. I'm going to speak a bit, and then we'll do a discussion at the end. That's how we'll structure it today. When you get to the New Testament, the, the, the New Testament really only knows two church offices, as they're called. Two, uh, two official roles, if you like, that God creates that continue to our day. Um, the apostles are there in the first generation. Obviously, the apostles aren't around anymore. But in our day, there are only two offices, elder and deacon. And we're focusing today on, on the elder role. And, and just so, again, we're all on the same page. Down there on the sheet, I've put some verses uh, down um, that show that these elders are sometimes called by other names. But they're the same group. Okay, so a bit like calling someone, um, you know, a father and a dad or something. Um, one's a bit more of a formal name, one's a bit more informal, but it's the same role. Okay, if you said Charlotte, my daughter, who's your dad? And she said, John T. And then you said, who's your father? I've just told you. <laughs> it's different names, but for the same office. And you see that with elders and overseers, as they're sometimes called. So in Acts 14, uh, we read about these elders. Paul appoints elders, plural, for them in every church. Uh, in Acts 15, there's a, there's a debate in the... In the in the early church about whether you still have to be circumcised. And so they get together all the apostles and the elders to consider the matter. Uh, initially, in Acts 20, Paul calls all the elders onto the beach in Ephesus. 
Uh, yeah, put the verse down there. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. But a few verses later, when he starts talking to them, sorry, I didn't put that verse on the sheet, but Acts 20 and verse 27, he says, um, oh, that's the wrong verse, isn't it? It's verse 28, actually. Pay careful attention to, the, to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or in old translations, bishops. Okay, so he's talking to the elders, but he's calling them bishops or overseers. Same group, different name. And the same thing you get in Titus 1. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left him in Crete, so you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. And then a few verses later, Titus 1 verse 7, there's an overseer must, or a bishop must. So that's the office we're focusing on today, that of elder or overseer. Now, you do need to distinguish that from ministry in the broad sense in which we often use it. So sometimes people say, I have my, my first boss, not Jake's dad, but the guy who was deputy to him. I was the bottom of the pile. Um, uh, I was in the Anglican Church, and um, he was somebody who believed that only men could have this role of, of being elders. And he would, he would always be going to sort of conferences in the CV. As you probably know, the CV has, has women vicars, women leaders. And people were all saying to him, oh, you don't believe women should do ministry, do you? You know, they knew he was a conservative one. And he said he would always say the same thing, which was, no, I totally believe they should. Um, and then they, everyone was sort of a bit, bit baffled and calmed down and left him alone. Now, he was being a bit tricksy in terms of probably just trying to not get into fights over coffee, that kind of thing. But, but his point was a good one. Um, nobody thinks that the only people who can do anything in church are the, are the elders. So all of us, you know, sometimes you hear the phrase, every, every member ministry. Um, all of us, male or female, are ministering for the Lord, serving the Lord. So the idea that, the idea that if you hold um, that the eldership role is meant to be male means you're saying women can't do ministries is a nonsense. You might be saying there is one particular role that is reserved for certain people, not all men, by the way. It's not just as if being male qualifies you. There's all sorts of qualifications. You, know, you have to have a teaching gift. Does that, if, if you've got a teaching gift, does that make you a better man than a man who doesn't? Well, of course not. No, we believe in every member in ministry. But there is this office that God has created, the office of an elder or an overseer or a bishop, if you like the old language, um, that he has spoken about. And just, again, last thing before we plow into 1 Timothy 2, it's worth noting that virtually nobody I was going to say nobody in church history but as soon as you make an, an absolute there'll be some weird something somewhere but virtually no one that I've ever heard of anyway in church history in any location around the world or across the centuries found the passages we're looking at today difficult to understand it doesn't matter what denomination or country or language um, or like just universally they were read really clearly as Okay, in this role, the kind of eldership role, it is a male role until the 20th century. Now, it could be that everybody was wrong forever across the world, and then brilliantly, um, the West, you know, Western Europe and North America or whatever in the 20th century finally saw what no one else had ever seen. All those stupid Africans and Asians and, you know, who got it wrong for centuries, but brilliant, the late Western 20th century. Here we are today, the day. It's possible. It'll be pretty punchy. So, let's have a look at 1 Timothy 2. Um, this is the, the classic sort of battleground text. 1 Timothy 2. So, after Paul's letters, all the kind of Ian's. 
So, uh, although we're going to focus in on chapter 2, um, just, just note in chapter 3, which is the qualifications for these elders or overseers or bishops, whatever you want to call them, um, verse 2 of chapter 3, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Okay. An overseer must be a husband of one wife. Okay. So it's obviously a male role. I don't think it means you have to be married, by the way, but if you are married, you've got to be a faithful husband. But clearly it's male in that sense. Or a few verses later, um, he must manage his household well, okay. uh, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how would he care for God's church? Again, a, a male role. But let's zoom in on, on chapter 2. And this, this letter is all about good order in God's household. Okay, so the kind of key verse of, of uh, 1 Timothy uh, is, is actually chapter 3 again, where Paul says, I I'm, I'm, hope to come and see you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Okay, so this does matter. How ought we to behave in God's household? It's not our church. certainly not my church, John T's or Peter's or Matt's. It's, it's God's household. At our ordination service in IPC, you often hear the line. So when someone becomes an elder, you often hear the line. Um, uh, you are to be the servant of your church, but they are not your master. Okay, so the minister, you know, as if it says, look, this is what I, I could say to you. I'm your servant, but you are not my master. The Lord is the head of the household. He sends us to serve, but it's his instructions, not ours. What do we do? Um, we'll jump in. Well, uh, let me read from verse 8, but we're going to focus on the last bit, as you'll see. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there's lots going on there. And let me just say, if this is sort of new to you or... Um, sort of slightly smacked between the eyes, that's, that's okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't want to sort of use it as a sledgehammer, but I do want to walk through this passage and again try and let God's word speak for itself or let him speak for himself. The crux obviously is verses 11 through 15. Okay, that's the, the really debated bit. I know there's other stuff going on before about clothes and all the rest of it, but that's for another day. And what you get in verse um, 11 and 12 are the commands... So the two commands, let a, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Those are commands. And then in verse 13 and 14, you get the explanations. Four. Okay, why have I just said that? Well, because, and then he goes, which we'll look at. Zoom in on verse 11 and 12. They're in parallel. You see two things in each verse. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So, so the parallel is, is there in the two commands. Let a woman learn quietly is then paralleled in verse 12 by, I do not permit a woman to teach. And then 
um, learn with all submissiveness is paralleled with I don't permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, two caveats. This isn't total silence in church. So if we read 1 Corinthians 11, which the pastor will come to another week, um, we see women praying, for example. Okay, you know, I don't know if church gathers at a prayer meeting or something. Um, of course, men and female pray. Uh, we get female prophets um, in the New Testament as well. Okay, so this isn't total silence, nor is it a total ban on all teaching. So in his letters to, um, to Titus, uh, one of the things Paul will say is, um, older women, one of the things I want you to do is teach. Okay, teach younger women how to, and on it goes. So this isn't, this can't, this isn't a kind of total ban on all speaking or on all teaching, but it does mean something, obviously. And notice too, and this, is, this probably doesn't jump out of this, but actually... The reason this passage would be countercultural in some cultures, as if we were doing Sunday school in some cultures across history and across the world, is people would be hearing that and saying, what? That is outrageous. What do you mean a woman is to learn? What's the point of that? Okay, what sort of stupid view of women is it that they're to learn? Why would, why would women need to learn? Now, we don't probably think like that, but for all sorts of reasons, and we're right not to think like that, but... but but actually, the, the fact that Paul is interested in women learning okay, shows that this isn't some sort of denigration as if, like, you know, just leave the theology and the Bible to the men and you women just trot on doing you know, whatever else. Okay, so, um, again, don't, don't, miss the, don't miss that just because maybe it, it sort of sits more quickly and more easily with us. But back to the, back to the kind of debated issues, I suppose. In all honesty, if you look at that passage, I remember my, my other boss saying this, um, if you gave that passage to 100 people who had no skin in the game, okay, weren't Christians, couldn't care less, um, and just said, what does it mean? What do you think would happen? It's not actually that confusing, is it, in terms of what it commands. We might not like it, but it's not difficult to understand what Paul's saying. Uh, so two prohibitions, two things not allowed. The first is the teaching. I don't permit a woman to teach Given what we know that elsewhere women are meant to teach in certain situations, what's he talking about? Well, I think the teaching here, although it's not the, quite the same as having the authority, is clearly linked to it. So the setting seems to be the gathering of the, the church. Okay? It is teaching in a kind of authoritative setting. And I think, therefore, it's best linked with the kind of teaching that you get from the elders. Elders are meant to be um, able to teach. That's one of their qualifications. And so that the feeding of the church, if you like, the authoritative teaching of the church, is meant to come from these elders who are male. And so largely, I think, the application of this passage um, is to, the, the, in our context, the, you know, the, the Sunday morning gathering of the church. The further you get away from that, the formal gathering of the church, into other settings, well, the more kind of debating you can have. So to put it really simplistically... Okay, I, I think this passage is, re- is super clear that the preaching on a Sunday morning is meant to come from men. Okay? And I, did, I, I did from the elders, really. Um, down this end of the spectrum, we're absolutely clear that Paul says older women should teach younger women. And actually, ministers aren't meant to teach the younger women. Okay? So I'm not allowed to teach young women various things. It's meant to be the older women. So you've got two, two really clear poles in between, you've got all sorts of other situations, haven't you? Um, what about Sunday school, like what we're doing now? Uh, what about home group? What about a CU meeting? Uh, what about a, a conference? 
Uh, what about a, a Bible college? Could you have women lecturing at Bible college? What about... Now, people will fall in different places, okay, exact, you know, on that spectrum, and, and I think that's inevitable, unavoidable, because Paul doesn't go through a big list of every conceivable, imaginable situation and give a yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But what is clear are the, are the two poles. It's not never, and there are certain situations clearly laid out where women are meant to teach, but this one um, in 1 Timothy 2 is, I think, very clear that the kind of the formal leading of the church kind of teaching is meant to be in the hands of men and elders. I've lost myself in my notes now. Oh, so that's the first, so there you go, that's the first prohibition, the teaching one. The second one, or exercise authority over man. That's the second thing that is um, uh, given to uh, men. Again, not all men, but I think elders. I do not put anyone to have authority uh, over a man. Again, I don't, it's not. I think it's, it's not sort of totally blanket. Like, I don't know. Um, you're a woman and you're a doctor, and you're the you're the consultant. And there's a 24 year old just popped out of medical school, male, used to be called junior health officer. Don't know what they're called anymore. And you say, this is where we're going to do the cuts and whatever. And he says, well, I'm a man. I'm going to tell you. And it's not that obviously, is it? Um, that'd be madness. But. Again, in the context of the church, uh, the leadership, the oversight, the authority role is given to men in the eldership. Now, some people have tried to argue that the, the word there, have authority, means kind of domineer. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't permit a woman to domineer a sort of aggressive authority. Um, that's all that Paul's banning. But if, if that was the case, if it was a kind of basically abusive authority. I don't permit a woman to, to be abusively authoritative. Well, why would he just ban women from doing that? You'd ban everyone. No one's allowed to do that. No one's allowed this kind of aggressive, stamping down, abusive authority. And in fact, when you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, these pastoral epistles, the problem in all the letters is men, not women. It's the men who are causing all the problems. It's the men who are all the false teachers. It's the men who are worming their way into people's houses and leading them astray. It's the men who are abusing their authority, not the women. So it doesn't make sense to say, oh, Paul's just attacking a kind of particularly domineering group of women because actually the problem is, is male um, nor is, is Paul saying I, I don't let me put it this way nor is Paul pushing together teaching and having authority uh, as if um, as if they're one command um, so some people say well look a woman's not allowed to um, authoritatively teach but they can teach, even on a Sunday morning, as long as they're under the authority of a, of a, of a, of a man. So you'll see in some churches, um, they'll say, well, women are totally allowed to preach on a Sunday morning as long as an elder, a man, has kind of, I don't know, checked it through in advance or is kind of there behind or whatever. Now, partly, I kind of, I don't know, because I don't hold this position, I kind of think if you're in the position where you think women ought to be able to preach, that doesn't really make you any happier. That, to me, just seems patronising as much as anything else. You know, you're allowed to preach as long as you know, a man's checked it out. I can't see that's going to calm down the debates. But also, it's just not what it's saying. There are two things here, no teaching and no authority. All of this fits really neatly with, with a theme that runs right there through the New Testament and indeed the Old, that it is to men, or to some men, not all men, but to some men, the leading and the teaching of the church is given. The idea, in other words, of male elders... As I said earlier, it's not a passage out of the blue. 
And that's where Paul goes with his reasons. So he's given these commands, and then verse 13 and 40, he gives the reasons, four, and he gives um, two main reasons. Firstly, verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. There is an ordering between male and female. That's what we looked at four or five weeks ago when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. First, it's not first is best. First doesn't make him better, but there is a, an ordering, a priority. He, from the beginning, was made to teach Eve, not the other way around. Okay, he's a picture of Christ. Elders are meant to be representatives of Christ, and that Eve is a picture of the church, and that Christ teaches the church, not us, him. So the first reason Paul gives is a right rooted in creation reason. And the second one, well, the second one's a bit harder, actually. Verse 14. And, second reason, Adam was not deceived, but the woman uh, was deceived. She became a transgressor. Transgressor, sorry, it's hard. Second reason, in one sense it's clear, Eve was the one um, deceived, not Adam. Two things it could mean. It may mean, it may mean, and this is how mostly it's been taught, through church history, it may mean that, that there is something on the whole, generalising and not absolutely every situation, of course, but on the whole, it may mean um, that Paul is saying, look, women are more easily deceived by Satan in terms of doctrinal things. Now, before we go completely mad, um, okay, I'm not sure which of these two things it means, by the way, so that's my first, you know, don't shoot me just yet. Uh, before we go totally mad, it, you, what you have got to say is that in the New Testament, very clearly, there are certain patterns of sin that are dominant in may, men and certain that are more dominant in women. Okay? It's never an absolute line, but they're just there. There are plenty of times in the New Testament where Paul will say, look, men, watch out for this and list a load of stuff. Now, at that point, the women aren't meant to be saying, well, does it not matter if I commit those sins? Well, of course it does. But it's just that Paul is happy to say, men, this is a particularly common problem for you. And he does the same with women. Okay? So Paul is happy to address men and women differently and say there are certain patterns of weaknesses and predilections more common to one sex than the other. Um, often it's men are more combative, um, likely to be divisive, domineering. Uh, and that might be what's going on here. It could be that because on the whole, broadly speaking, la la la, on the whole, um, women are more likely towards the kind of peacekeeping. Um, it may be there's something sort of less, um, less willing to fight over doctrine at times where you need to fight. Okay. Now, that's how it's mostly been taught in church history. Make of that what you will. There is also another possible explanation of this verse. Um, Paul could be saying this. Adam wasn't the one deceived. Eve was. We know Eve was deceived. We know the, the story. Paul could be saying, look, Adam wasn't deceived. He rebelled openly. So he wasn't tricked by Satan. He rebelled, if you like, high-handedly. He knew perfectly well what to do and what not to do, and he still did it. So whereas Eve was sort of misled, Adam was high-handedly rebellious. If he's saying that, then what he's saying essentially again is, remember, Adam was the one who got the word of God given directly to him. Remember, Adam is the one who was meant to be leading. So whilst Eve was sort of tricked, Adam openly had been given the word of God and went against it. So although that was wrong, it's another reminder that it was Adam to whom the word of God was given to teach Eve. 
In other words, another way of saying, remember the pattern of Genesis. Make of that what you will. I don't quite know which way I'd go on it, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, yeah, just think it's, it's, it's slightly tricky. But again, the overall picture is perfectly clear. Um, to round off verse 15, which I don't really want, I mean, it's not massively germane, but having read it, we'd better say something on it. Uh, verse 15 is definitely a debated verse, okay? Yet, she's a, w- a woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, what is going on here? Um, two options again for you that have been sort of propagated down the years. Um, the first is, it, I mean, literally it says, women will be saved through the childbearing. Okay, it's slightly kind of clumsy if it's... The childbearing. So that's made some people think it means through the birth of the child. The child is in through Mary's birth of Christ. Okay, if you continue in continue in the faith, you will be saved through the bearing of the, the child, the, you know, the, the one who was born for us. Um, possible. I think more likely what he's saying um, is this. I need to be careful. I get to my notes here so I don't go off script. Um, I think he's saying. I think he's saying this. Um, as we are sanctified in our God-appointed roles, we'll be saved. So not by doing our God-appointed roles, but as we sort of sanctify them, as we walk in the paths that God has called us, we'll be saved. A bit like when Paul says in Philippians two, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean we've got to earn our salvation. He just means we've got to keep walking in the way that God has called us. Um, so we're not saved by it, but that is the path we walk home. A bit later in 1 Timothy, Timothy is told that if he preaches well and watches his life and doctrine, he will save his hearers. Now, I can't mean that Timothy is literally the saviour, can it? I mean, obviously he isn't. But as a minister, that's the path he is called to walk in, and through his ministry, um, he'll save himself and his hearers. Uh, what would that mean? Well, Paul would, would be saying, therefore, look, stick in your, your, your um, gender-orientated um, callings. Women, stop trying to um, grab the elder position, the teaching authority position, but, but stick to the role that God has given you in which you can flourish and serve him, which is just as valuable, of course, as the elder role, which on the whole is, um, is that of motherhood. Now, obviously, let me say straight away, it's not saying no single or childless woman can be saved. Okay, we know it's obvious it's not that, is it? The gospel's there. Rather, he's generalising, as he does at times. So if you look over the, over the uh, page, 1 Timothy 5, I think it's probably the verses that help explain it best. 1 Timothy 5. And verse 14. Paul's addressing women who've been widowed young. Obviously, lots of people were widowed in those days. Imagine a young widow. What, what does he want for them? Verse 14. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have strayed after Satan. Um, that'll do, 14 will do, actually. Um, is Paul saying all young women must have, all young widows, sorry, must have to? Well, okay, no, of course not. But is there, what is the kind of... The basic pattern of life, on the whole, uh, that God has called these young widows to, well, marriage, children, managing households, and so on. Now, again, 
believe it or not, that means that verse 15, back in chapter 2, is ending on a positive. In fact, on a positive note, which is, to the the women in Ephesus, you don't need to grab for this authoritative teaching role. Um, You don't need to grab for the pulpit or, or grab for being an elder, whatever it is. There is a huge, huge, massively significant way you can serve God, which is the one that has been plugged into the creation right from Genesis 2. The raising of the next generation is not somehow second best. It is massively significant. Um, So this isn't about having a worse calling or a second class calling. It is, again, a complementary calling. So again, let me just finish by saying... I know that if you don't, if you're a woman and you don't have children, okay, that raises all sorts of questions. Um, and definitely, you should not read this passage as, unless you're married with children, you know, you're not really got anything to do. Okay, I, did, I just refer you back to last week and all the stuff on singleness in the New Testament. I, I just can't say everything every week because we'd be here forever. Um, so, yeah, please don't hear that. Of course, single men and women have got loads to do in the kingdom of God. But Paul is talking these kind of generalities, and the generalities, particularly in his, in his time, would be that most people would get married, male or female. Not everybody, but most. Okay? And that's why he's talking in these kind of big brushstroke ways and trying to dignify motherhood. He's not trying to denigrate singleness. There we go. Uh, that is a monster of a passage, uh, but one we need to address at some point um, in our series. Let me, let me stop. First of all, any questions at this stage? Um, yeah. You can do a few minutes' discussion. But any questions? Jake? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Not sure. Uh, Deacons is much... The short answer is Deacons is much more debatable. And I'm not... I keep swaying. So it's much less clear because Deacons aren't given all... Well, they certainly aren't top called to teach. And so then you have a debate over whether they have authority or not. So that's the kind of thing. So that's the other church office. And good people have gone either way on that. So that's a much, much more... Debated questions. I'm not sure whether we'll bother with it for a whole session. Other yeah. questions? Hey. Um, a deacon, is it just male role? Yeah. Um, I, the short answer is I'm not sure, and um, it's sort of similar to Jake's thing, really. It, yeah, th- there are people. The problem with the word deacon is it's just the word servant. Okay. So at times there are women described as di- diaconoi, you know, and so the debate becomes: what, is that just meaning a servant like we're all servants, or is that meaning servant as in deacon servant? And it's kind of like uh, difficult to know. Um, also, um, because they're not—if you look at the jobs they're given, the roles they're given, whereas the elder is given authority and teaching, the deacon has, certainly doesn't, isn't given any teaching authority. Um, and is under the authority of the, the session. So arguably, the two things that Paul is concerned about, teaching and authority, neither of them are true of deacons. So, so lots of reformed people and all sorts of other people throughout history have said female deacons are okay. Others, not happy with that. I, honestly, I find it really difficult. IPC allows female deacons. So I'm next week. Oh, and that's another question, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, IP, IPC has had female deacons... Um, other churches don't. It's up to the local congregation. Um, yeah. Good. You both picked up on the issue I was trying to dodge. Well done. Um, 
Any more, any more? Great. Oh, we've got to, sorry, that was quite, that was a long one. Um, I think, I think I'd better pray so we can turn church around in time and give people time to um, set up. But um, there's a bunch of kind of discussion questions I've put down there, which you can, you can chat with your neighbour about afterwards if you're not helping on the setup. Um, yeah, let me pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, um, we are your household. Uh, this is your church, uh, your family, uh, your kingdom. Uh, and we want to honour you in everything we do. Uh, we pray you'd give us courage when we need to, uh, to be courageous, grace, patience, when we need to be gracious and patient. Uh, we pray we would be full of love and gentleness. Uh, we pray for those who are called, um, whether now or in the future, into these this role of eldership, that you would give them uh, servant-heartedness. And we pray that you would bless all of us in our callings and lift our eyes to uh, see the joy of serving you uh, in our own situations. Bless, keep your church, we pray, in your own name. Amen.